The Athletic. Hello, listener. What's that tingly feeling? It's the Euros, and it's coming up really, really soon. And I've got three bits of Euro-related news for you. First of all, The Athletic's new Daily England show is up and running already with analysis of last night's Austria game. Follow at The Athletic UK on the Twitters for more info on that. Next, our two totally previews are dropping next week and we'll be recording nightly shows at the end of every match day. Woof. Finally, if, as part of your Euro 2020 warm-up weekend, you wanted to, say, relive each European Championship from 1988 to 2016... Then you are in luck, because if you subscribe to The Athletic's Beyond the Headline feed on Apple, Spotify or The Athletic app, you'll find that we've just launched our brand new Euro Stories series doing just that. To give you a flavour, set your time machine to 1996 and allow Ian McIntosh and some familiar Totally Football Show voices to take you back to that wild summer of Gaza and Gareth, Badil and Skinner, the highest of highs and the lowest of lows. All together now. Ladies and gentlemen, it's 1996 and football is coming home. No, not to China, where historians believe Tushu, an early form of football, was played over 2,000 years ago. But to England, where a game that grew out of a traditional agrarian free-for-all was codified by whiskery former public schoolboys in 1864. Hurrah! It's a big tournament. Partly because this is England's chance to redeem themselves after decades of hooliganism caused all of their clubs to be kicked out of European football. And partly because a competition is now twice the size. 16 teams, four groups of four, and then a straight knockout. So let's go group by group. Group A kicks off on June the 8th with the hosts very much on their best behaviour against Switzerland. Interestingly, after nearly two years at the helm, this is Terry Venable's first competitive game in charge of England. They didn't really seem to find a formula at all going into the tournament. Oliver Kay is the Athletics' senior football writer. But he was always sort of insisting, well, you know, it's about getting it right in the tournament. And then the tournament started. Alan Shearer, excellent goal against um, Switzerland. And, and it was his first international goal for, for, for a long, long time. There'd been a bit of a clamour about whether Shearer, Shearer was good enough at international level, as, as daft as that sounds now. But then England, England sort of retreated and regressed and fell back in the, in the second half and conceded a penalty and Switzerland equalised it and then they were up against it. Two days later, the Dutch open up with a disappointing goalless draw against Scotland. The mood in the camp is grim. There are allegations of a racial divide with pictures emerging that appear to show black and white players eating separately. But Jonathan O'Brien, author of Eurosummit, suggests that the bad feeling was more to do with the disparity of wages among the Ajax players. Either way, the unhappiness doesn't prevent the Dutch from beating the Swiss by two goals to nil in their next game. In the group's other fixture, England face the old enemy Scotland at Wembley. And there is no margin for error. So naturally, England are completely dreadful for 45 minutes. 
They're much better after half-time. Alan Shearer gives them the lead, and then Scotland win a penalty. Jury's in there too. Penalty given! And up steps Gary McAllister. He, he, he puts the ball in the sport. Stuart Weir is the former head of sport at the Glasgow Herald. He was a captain. He, he backed himself. If it had been me, I, I would have handed the ball to Ali McCoyst, who at that point could only score goals for fun. He also would have probably scored with a, by backheeling the ball whilst looking into a mirror past Davis Saban. He was, he was a bit cocky when it came to these things, but he would have backed McCoy, I would have backed McCoy ahead of McAllister. And what we didn't know, of course, was that Yuri Geller had put down his spoons for 90 minutes and had concentrated on moving the match ball at Wembley. So when Gary McAllister runs up to take the, the spot kick inexplicably the ball actually does move it does move the, the, the footage is there for all to see and he smashes it on another day seeming goes the other direction but um, he smashes the ball it hit David Seaman on his left elbow and flies away to to safety and that in a nutshell was the day for Scotland And then the ball went down the other end, sort of within minutes. Paul Gascoigne did his bit, and a brilliant goal, absolutely brilliant goal. Very unorthodox goal, really, but it was it was brilliant. It, it showed the you know, the genius of Gascoigne. Oh, here's Gascoigne. Gascoigne, he can finish it here. Paul Gascoigne, 2-0. Gascoigne had a had a strange tournament, really. If you, if you sort of stripped away the the Gazamania. He, he had some, he had some iffy performances, and he had a couple of brilliant performances. And he, he'd had a really poor first half in that game against Scotland, but then really came to life with that goal. And with that, I think the mood in the nation changed. Certainly, the mood in the in the pub I was in in Birmingham changed dramatically. So that means Scotland have to beat Switzerland at Villa Park if they're to have a chance of qualifying which they do, courtesy of an Ali McCoy strike. Meanwhile, England take on the mighty Dutch, having hitherto offered only fleeting moments of competence. But on the whole, it goes rather well. It just felt ecstatic watching it. It was it was like one of those performances where you just think, well, th- this doesn't happen, this doesn't happen with England. Listener, it happened. Two goals from Shearer, two goals from Sheringham, England running rampant. It felt like a dream. It was... An incredible performance. The, the fourth goal where I think McManaman goes down the right and squares it and Sheringham faints to shoot and just he just knocks it into the path of, of Shearer and Shearer blasts it into the roof of the net in the same way that, you know, the, the Carlos Alberto goal in 1970 was a beautiful icing on the cake goal. I'd say that the, the Shearer goal against Holland in, in 96 was a beautiful icing on the cake goal. It was it was spectacular it was it was the type of football that you just didn't really expect to come from from an England team and, and look it was talented players talented players but you didn't expect them to click in in that manner as the game enters its final stages England's whopping 4-0 lead means that Scotland will qualify in second place so you can imagine how well Patrick Clivert's late goal goes down
And at that point in time, with Scotland beating the Swiss 1-0, thanks to, oh, guess who, Ali McCoyst, who managed to bang one in from 25 yards, never mind 12 yards, Phillip Park was absolutely rocking. And then, inexplicably, well, actually, I could explain it. I think England just decided the Scots, Scots weren't going to get through. And they allowed, you know, Cliver to score. And... Again, it was like all the air being sucked out of a a balloon, or, you know, or somebody just pricking the balloon and it going bang, because you've gone from the ecstasy and jubilation of actually believing that for the first time ever Scotland would qualify for the knockout stages of a tournament, to suddenly realising that the big sign saying North on the M6 was beckoning again, and we were all going home. And so, at the end of all of that, it's England and the Netherlands who go through, and Scotland, sorry, and Switzerland who go home. But what's happening in Group B? France, desperately disappointing in 1992 and absent entirely from the World Cup in 1994, are on the rise. They've added a 23-year-old playmaker by the name of Zinedine Zidane to the team. And he looks all right, to be fair. You could not tell at the Euros 1996 how good Zidane is going to be. Julian Laurent is a French football expert and part of the Totally Football Show. And obviously what's very famous is the, um, that phrase by Giovanni Agnelli, who just bought him from Bordeaux to take him to Juventus after Michel Platini was uh, full of praises and everybody else. And Agnelli said, well, is, is this really the guy we've just signed? Looking at Zidane play, because Zidane was not fully fit, nowhere near his best. And he struggled a bit, like, like France struggles in terms of creativity, really, in that competition. However, you knew that the talent was there. You knew that he was on his way up. And you knew that he was just only going to be a, a short amount of time before, before Zidane could potentially rule the world. But certainly people were getting excited about, OK, if, if he can be the leader and be as good of a leader as a good football player is technically then I think the future of the French national team is bright. And obviously, he didn't disappoint. The French pick up three points easily enough in their first game, beating Romania by a single goal. Spain, by contrast, have to come from behind to rescue a draw against Bulgaria. Now, Bulgaria and Romania lit up the 1994 World Cup and proto-hipsters everywhere are excited to see them face off against each other at St James's Park. But the match is a bit of a letdown. Risto Stoichkov scores a critical early goal. Georges Hagi offers only flashes of his greatness. And Romania are out. France look to be cruising. They're five minutes away from securing a place in the quarterfinals. They ship a late goal to a Spanish side that never really convinces in international tournaments. Why? Well, there was a number of reasons. Alvaro Romeo is a Spanish football expert and part of the Totally Football Show. I think that uh, Spain... Um underachieved for a long time between uh, 1984 when they played the European uh, Cup final and uh, between 2006. I believe that they, they could have done better in a few competitions, definitely in Euro 96 or in World Cup 2002. But um, they were missing a player who made a difference. I think that uh, the likes of uh, Roberto Ballo, the likes of Andy Moller, the likes of Paul Gascoigne were playing elsewhere. Spain maybe didn't have that differential player. The last set of fixtures offer up two battles between Western and Eastern Europe. France wrap up the group in style, beating Bulgaria 3-1. 
but it's a little harder for Spain, who are perilously close to an early exit as the clock ticks down at Elland Road. Romania, that was a difficult game. Uh, many Romanian players were fantastic, Popescu, Petrescu, Haji, and Spain couldn't just uh, break that draw uh, after Radio you scored the goal. But then, uh, since uh, there were no stars up front, a midfielder had to step up, and it was Guillermo Amor. Let's don't forget that Raúl. Uh, hadn't been called for that Euro 96 because Javier Clemente thought that Raúl was better uh, helping the Olympic team qualify for Atlanta 96. Cripes. Well, Spain's struggles make a lot more sense now, but they, along with France, are through. So what's occurring in Group C? This is the designated group of death, and no wonder. You've got Germany, eager to make amends after disappointing at the World Cup. You've got Italy, runners-up in that World Cup. You've got Russia, always a danger. And then, you've got the Czech Republic. Surely they're only here to make up the numbers, right? I was a boy, there was no internet, so I hardly ever read newspaper at that time. David Chermak is a Czech football reporter. Uh, so football was just fun, and I, was, I wasn't really thinking about the strength of the opponents at that time. But now, if you look back, it definitely was an incredibly tough group to go through. Uh, Germans, they were favorites in every tournament. Italians were finalists of the World Cup and Russians, they, they also had some really great players. And also historically, it's always a big occasion for Czech people to play against Russia. So yeah, uh, at first it, it seemed as mission impossible for the team who had no real stars and many young ex- inexperienced players. How underrated were the Czechs? Well, put it this way, some of their opponents didn't even know they qualified. I remember Patrick Berger telling a story about Jürgen Kohler, who was his teammate in Dortmund. And during the last training session of the season, he asked him for his plans for the summer. And Berger answered, well, I'm going to the Euros. And Kohler, he told him, oh, you got the tickets or you're going to watch some games. And he was a member of German national team, but he didn't know that Czech team qualified and that they will be playing them in the group, actually. Mind you, perhaps Kohler was right to be complacent. Germany swapped them aside in the first game, while Italy beat Russia 2-1. But then, things start to get weird. Italy, World Cup finalists in 1994, of course, take on the Czech Republic, and Arrigo Sacchi, one of the greatest managers of the era, decides to make a few changes. It was a better start to a competition than uh, the World Cup in 1994 when, when Italy lost to Ireland. James Horncastle is the Athletics Italian football writer. But uh, Saki's decision to rotate his team um, extremely between games came back uh, to haunt him, made five changes between the win over, over Russia and uh, the Czech Republic. And they never really were able um, to react to going behind in that game to a young Pavel Nedved. There's a possibility there, and a goal is given, scored by Nedved. The Czechs have taken a real surprise lead there. And then when Apolloni got sent off after half an hour, Saki says that uh, it was like he was asleep on his feet um, because it took him 10 minutes or so um, to uh, change the team, realise how he needed to restructure the team and uh, it, the team did not was not able to, to come back in the way that, for example, it had done in adversity in 94 against Norway, 
when he, he infamously substituted Roberto Baggio when uh, the goalkeeper Gianluca Pagliuca got, uh, got shown a red card and Italy still won that game, 1-0. So the Czech Republic game was an example of just how things were slipping away from Saki. Measuring up the cross. Oh, it's another goal! And it's Babel who's put the Czechs 2-1 ahead! Italy lose to the minnows of the group. Germany are fine. They beat Russia at Old Trafford and qualify. But Italy are in a bit of bother. They have to beat the Germany side that's yet to concede a goal and hope that the Czech Republic slip up against an already eliminated Russia. How does that work out then? Well, after 20 minutes, the Russians are 2-0 down and Gianfranco Zola's missed a penalty, so not good, not good. Poor old Gianfranco Zola. Um, you know, he'd got sent off um, in the World Cup in 1994 against Nigeria, uh, which... Uh, left his team down to 10 men when they were 1-0 down and luckily Badjo put on his cape and rescued them. This time there was no Badjo. Um, so he misses this penalty against uh, against Germany after only eight minutes. Italy play really well. In fact, Saki thinks that this is one of their best performances in his time in charge to the extent that he has this anecdote about Oliver Bierhoff going in at half-time, this being very much Bierhoff's tournament turning to Saki and saying, God, you guys are playing well, aren't you? But it didn't amount to anything. Um, They weren't uh, able to score. Uh, They drew nil-nil and uh, they were eliminated and certainly weren't able to build on on reaching a a major tournament final only only a couple of years uh, before. And I think if you if you reflect on them reaching the semis in 1990 at their home World Cup, the, the final in 94, uh, for them to go out of a group stage was a, was a big shock. Incredibly, the Italians could still have qualified. The Czechs squander their lead, go 3-2 down, and it's only a late Vladimir Schmitzer goal that saves the day, albeit while causing a few domestic issues. The funny thing is that Schmitzer had already had uh, his wedding arranged on the week before the finals. So his future wife started to feel a bit confused. Uh, she was perhaps afraid he didn't want to marry her because <laughs> he scored his goal and Czechs advanced. So there was a chance they will go further in the tournament. And in the end, as the team really advanced to the finals, uh, Schmitzer was allowed to sit on a plane and fly to Prague for his marriage just two days before the finals in Wembley. So I can't really imagine something like this these days. And I also heard that after the game against Russia, the players uh, celebrated in the hotel. They were drinking beer in the lobby bar until late night. And the manager, Dushan Uhrin, he was pretending he didn't see them. He just uh, went to sleep and let them celebrate. So, <laughs> And it was the same after quarterfinals and semifinals. So, yeah, it, it was a different world. A different world indeed. But one in which the Germans are still really, really good at football. They top Group C. So let's take a look at Group D. Holders Denmark are back in action, but there's little confidence that they can retain their title. No, 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 no. That was once in a lifetime. <laughs> Niels Harlid is a Danish football commentator. It was like this is um, this is a team that it was a run, round of honour almost going to England. After Remember, we didn't qualify for the 94 World Cup, which was a big mistake, big shame. And I'm still sad about that game against Spain, which cost us, us the part of, of the World Cup in, in the USA because we could have done something there, actually. But we went out and that was sort of the end until we reached the quarterfinal in 98 of the World Cup. Then. <laughs> They draw with Portugal in their opening fixture. Instead, it's Croatia who catch the eye. 
with so many of the players who should have appeared in Euro 92 under the flag of Yugoslavia, there's a sense that they want to make up for lost time. Oh, man, where, where to start? Sasha Ibrul is a Bosnian football writer. <laughs> that, 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 I mean, that, that was a wonderful football team. Uh, obviously, the product of, of the Yugoslav football system, which hit its high in the late 80s and early 90s when they won the Youth World Cup in Chile and played in the World Cup quarterfinals. But this was a team packed with stars. I mean, at the time, Davo Shukir was probably one of the best strikers in international football. He was supported by Zvonimir Boban and Robert Prosinecki, two super talented, technically gifted players. When Croatia take on Denmark, it's a brutal one-sided contest that ends with a heavy defeat for the champions. The torch has been passed. But Croatia themselves are brought back down to earth in their final fixture, taking a thrashing at the hands of Portugal. But both teams progress to the next stage, while Turkey and Denmark are heading home. Up next, it's the knockout stages. And yep, there are some penalty shootouts to come. Looking for an assist with your credit card, but can't get a hold of anyone? Luckily, with 24-7, U.S.-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yep, you heard that right. You can talk to a real human and customer service at any time. Sounds like a real game changer if you ask us. Make the right call and get the service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. This episode is brought to you by Michelob Ultra, the official beer sponsor of the NBA. Want to get closer to the game than ever before? Michelob Ultra Courtside is giving fans the chance to win exclusive NBA prizes and experiences like official gear, courtside seats to an NBA game, and more. Head over to MichelobUltra.com slash courtside to learn more. It's 1996, and we're in the quarterfinals. England, having beaten Scotland and thrashed the Netherlands, are on a high. The nation is fired up. Optimism courses through the country. They face Spain in the quarterfinals and they are dreadful again and extremely lucky. Yes, we do remember it very differently. I think that uh, there was a huge disappointment for losing against England, especially for for the way uh, Spain lost because they controlled the game. They had many chances, many half chances as well that they could have uh, made a difference in the game. Then a, a, a goal ruled off for offside. Uh, Julio Salinas scored and he was perfectly onside. And then uh, probably a penalty on Alfonso that wasn't called. So uh, Spain and Spanish fans had many reasons to feel not only sad, but also a little bit aggravated after this game. The Spain game on, on that Saturday afternoon was a real slog and Spain had a goal wrongly disallowed, I think, for, for offside. And I mean, England really rode their luck. Alfonso. Oh. Has he given a penalty? No, I think he's given, I think he's given a free kick to England. That is the luckiest free kick England will ever have in the history of the game. That's a penalty. It's nil and nilla at full time and at the end of extra time. And so, for the first time since that traumatic night in Turin, to penalties. And up steps Stuart Pearce. I would defy anybody to, or 
and anybody English to say they watch that match, if they see that back, that they don't get goosebumps <laughs> watching it. And it isn't necessarily about him being sort of this epitome of of some ideal of Englishness or, or you know, pe- however people perceive Stuart Pearce to be. It's the knowledge that a guy like Stuart Pearce, who had had a really good World Cup six years earlier, had missed that penalty, and he'd been he'd been slaughtered at, at various away grounds in the months that followed that World Cup. I mean, he, he got a lot, a lot of grief for missing that penalty and he took it very, very personally and, and, and you know, you lost us the World Cup and things like that. And I think there were uh, there were real nerves probably throughout the nation as Stuart Pearce stepped up and probably people think, oh, not Stuart Pearce, as if he was some kind of unreliable, flaky character. But I think people can us- underestimate what courage, what nerves that took for him to volunteer to to take one of the you know one of the five penalties in, in that in that quarterfinal on home soil crowd which was you know incredibly tense and he went up and he absolutely buried the penalty nobody really wants to see him miss it and he hasn't three out of three for england wow he's fired up for that and the cathartic release that you saw from him in the moments that followed. I mean, as he punched the air, I think he punched the air twice, and he's got this sort of grim-faced, you know, look of defiance. And I I said goosebumps at the start. I'm getting goosebumps talking about it. France's clash against the Netherlands should be one of the most exciting mouth-watering clashes you can imagine. But it, too, is a dreadful game. I think the French decided... Let's leave them the ball and let's be very cautious and again, very defensive, which is what Jacquet wanted them to do. They certainly executed the plan really well in what Jacquet wanted, didn't leave this Dutch team any space. And and we knew that this was a Dutch team as well that, didn't, although they had loads of creative players and loads of very gifted players, technically especially, at times against a very low block with no space, could struggle a bit to create anything. And that's exactly what happened. You're right, it was one of the worst games that I've ever watched. And, and I was a young boy at the time and and it was it was bad. But but we knew that's what Jacquet was doing. He he kept saying, let's put our defensive shape together first. Let's make sure we solid again. Let's make sure we don't concede. And for the rest, we'll see. And what we saw was France winning on penalties. So, let's move on. It's time for Germany, one of the mightiest powers in European football, to take on one of the newest as they face Croatia. And there was a real nasty vibe in this game. There was, the Croatians played very, very tough, I seem to remember. Raphael Honigstein is the Athletics' German football writer. They had Igor Stimac sent off as well in the second half. And Germany just kind of fought through this game and perhaps thanks to their superior individual quality, although you could argue that the Croatians weren't, part, weren't far behind them, but mostly because they kept their cool a little bit better, uh, they went through it. But it was a very, very tough game and uh, a good result for Betty Fogt and everyone. So, bit of a physical game then? Yeah, that was, uh, I think that was gently put, a uh, physical game. I mean, if it, if, it, if it was played nowadays, it would be like, what? 10, 12 yellows and at least a couple of uh, reds. So, first of all, I think they were disappointed with the way everything ended because they felt robbed, even though it was 
kicking on both. They were kicking on both sides of the park. They were still disappointed because Igor Stimac was sent off like a couple of minutes after after the equalizing goal, and then Germany scored that second one uh, after what they thought was a foul. So the the sense of disappointment was huge in that uh, in that Croatia's side at the time. But yes, again, this was their first major tournament. This was their breakthrough to the world of football. And uh, the most important thing for them was to show the people that they can compete. And I think that match was another proof that this Croatia side could compete the best in Europe. Portugal are understandably relieved to avoid the big guns in the last eight. And few expect anything other than a comfortable victory against the Czech Republic. But once again, they've got other ideas. So Boborski, he was really a great player, played so many great matches, but this one will be the number one forever to score such a goal on such an occasion. That is something absolutely special, very brave, very magical. And Boborski later said that he wants uh, fly to Indonesia and an officer in the airport asked him, are you the Poborski who scored that goal? <laughs> and... Uh, Even though he looks very different now, he has beard, glasses, short hair. The fans all around the world still remember him because of what he did in this game against Portugal. So it was really magical and the moment of the tournament. Yeah. Poborski's done brilliantly here. A brilliant goal. A moment of genius from Poborski. Prior to 1996, France hadn't played a knockout game in a tournament since the 1986 World Cup semi-final. But now they find themselves one game away from the European Championship final. Standing in the way, yes, it's them again. It's the Czech Republic. This game was different because I really believe had we played Germany, for example, in the semi-final, Again, it would have suited us far more than playing this, this Czech Republic with an amazing generation, really, when you think about Patrick Berger and Popovsky and all those guys. But suddenly we were the favorite. And this was not, this was not Jacques's style and, 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 and trip at that time. This, is, this was not him. He didn't like that. He didn't like to be in the limelight. He didn't like to be the favorite. He didn't like people saying, oh, yeah, you're going to qualify. This is an easy game. He hated that. But that's what happened. And I think... That obviously played against the French. Not that they they approached that game in a, in a much more attacking way or expensive way at all. The ideas was very much like what they did since the start of the tournament. But I think psychologically to get into this game with more pressure, because suddenly we were the favorite. I think I think that, that played against us and against the French. And there was a sense of there was a lot of tension. I thought uh, there was a lot of fragility in the way they play. It was very different to that solid team that was there before, who always was, was, was screaming like, okay, come at us. We don't fear you. We don't fear anything. And suddenly they were scared to qualify for the final and to, to be the favorite and to have those expectations and that pressure and deliver. <laughs> to be honest, this was the most boring match the Czech team played during the tournament, at least for me, until the penalties came. But at that time, the whole, whole country was so excited and... Nobody really cared that there was little chances, that it was mostly a tactical, careful game where nobody wanted to make a mistake. And I remember myself watching the game in my friend's house and after Petr Koba, the goalkeeper, 
he saved the decisive penalty. We started shouting and jumping like crazy. It was a massive moment for whole Czech football and advancing to the finals. That was something really unthinkable before the tournament. Nobody expected that. It was all about Renal Pedros, who's the poor guy who missed that penalty. So everybody scored. The five penalty takers, who were the same ones as against the Netherlands in the quarterfinal, in the same order, Zidane, Jokev, Lizarazu, uh, Guerin and Blanc, all scored. Same with the five um, Czech players. So then he was down to number six and the sudden death. And I think Renal Pedros, maybe, who had been... Who had had great years with Nantes, obviously, you know, and won won the league with this amazing generation that they had and playing great football. So you can just imagine Pedros, who was this huge talent. He was an artist, really, like great left foot, uh, long hair, so much swag, so cool. Going into this French team where he was not a regular starter, a team that was playing the complete extreme style of football to what he was playing at Nantes, what he grew up with because he was at the Nantes Academy, which at the time was the most flamboyant, stylish football academy in the whole world. And yet he was not asked to basically spend his time defending when he spent all his life being told how to attack, how to dribble, how to run forward, etc. So already it was, it was a misfit. And now you ask him to take this penalty in sudden death, in a Euro semi-final, in a, in a game that you should win, that, you, that everybody expects you to win. And I think the pressure was too much. Tedros. We'll take the first of the sudden death penalties for France. It's saved! Tobar saved it! He obviously missed. It was a bad pen. And then he came home. He was the paria. Everybody hated him. His career went really downhill massively. I mean, he went to Marseille where he had a, a nightmare. And it was just, it was just sad. And, and he, was, he was really the scapegoat for that defeat, which he should not have been. If he scores from this penalty kick, And now for the big one, England, Germany, Wembley, 30 years on from, uh, you know. This was 30 years after 1966. I don't want to say that, you know, the way that England won that final still plays heavily on the mind of German football fans because that would be overstating it. But Wembley has always been something very special, a mythical place for Germany. Unfortunately, one tabloid newspaper in particular was fixated on a, a very different past meeting between England and Germany. I don't think there were any negative feelings towards England as a country or the fact that they had this mass euphoria and this feel-good factor. I think Germany kind of, Germans enjoyed it. And as you know, the, the song caught on as well. Even the Germans were singing it and it, it proved kind of infectious. But I think also there was a a slight consternation and surprise about the way that the tabloid press handled this tournament um, and certainly this game with lots of references to um, World War Two and uh, Achtung Fritz, the famous line with uh, Stuart Pearce wearing a, a soldier's hat from World War One, and um, lots of references to bombing and all this kind of stuff. Um, I guess that Germans realized that there was some kind of jokey element involved. But then again, we had learned long ago not to make jokes about world wars for obvious reasons. 
So, which England do we get? Bad one that limps past Spain? Or the good one that batters the Dutch? It's the good one. Towards the near post, a little flick on. It's a goal for England. And Shearer. Shearer has done it again. His fifth goal in five games. A star from Brian Robson. Delight from the English fans. And the perfect start. Beer was flying and everybody was just sort of hugging. And I... I recently came across a picture of a photograph of, of, of me celebrating in, in um, probably after three minutes um, of that semi-final and, and God, I look ecstatic. Um, it felt like everything has fallen into place here. I mean, it was a bad start, but the goal came so early that I think you still feel, okay, this is just the beginning. It didn't feel like, you know, Germany are going to get destroyed. And of course, Stefan Kunz, and I, I want to stress the way his second name is pronounced here, um, he struck back so quickly that I don't think that that negative momentum, if there was any, was allowed to linger. Hellmann, nicht im Abseits. Und Kunz, Tor! One all at halftime. One all at full time. The tension builds. And if Paul Gascoigne's toenails were ever so slightly longer. Trying to get Shearer on the far side. Onto the volley. being a stud's length from, from connecting with it, that would have been an amazing moment. It, would, it, it really would have been you know, an amazing moment. And I think it would have been a deserved win on, on the night. In my mind, at least, England were the better team in, in, in that semi-final and, and deserved to go through, but obviously it went, uh, it went down to penalties again. It only got worse because the penalties was just incredibly tense uh, watching that. I mean, yes... We now say, you know, Germans' penalties, of course, you know, they will never miss. And they didn't miss one at a penalty at a, at a tournament for, for many years to come. But at the time, I was thinking, ooh, you know, this is, this is going to be very, very tricky. I mean, there's enough nerves about England and penalty shootouts anyway after 1990. But when, you know, you, you've got all these guys walking up to take penalties and it's Shearer and it's Sheringham and it's Platt and it's Pierce again and it's Gascoigne and you're thinking wow th these are really good penalty takers this guy's going to score this guy's going to score and then when you saw Southgate walk up I think my heart sank not because I didn't rate Gareth Southgate but because I couldn't really imagine Gareth Southgate taking a penalty and you want somebody who's a sort of reliable penalty taker in, in, in that position and I, you know, I think people will say well Why isn't Paul Ince taking it? Why isn't you know, McManaman or, or whoever taking it? It was a moment where you thought, God, suddenly thought, oh, is he going to score? And it was a weak penalty. He walked up and it was a weak penalty and it was saved. And, and, and that you know, from that moment, you're just thinking, well, that's gone. Well, he's only just recently forced his way into the England side, Southgate. Model, they call him, at uh, Model at uh, Aston Villa. He does everything right. Well, let's hope he can do this right as well. Saved it! Oh, my word. Hans! Deutschland in finale! <sighs> yep. Still getting over that one.
It's the final of Euro 96 and the Czech Republic have defied all expectations to be here. The team really wanted to uh, go further in the tournament, even though they lost the first game. But then as the atmosphere really changed, the team gained confidence and the players who they, they grew up uh, before the Iron Carton fell. So they really thought that this is their chance to shine, that this is their chance to make the mark and... Uh, you know, to attract attention from the biggest clubs. So I think that they really uh, stick together. Germany, it's fair to say, are feeling pretty confident. I also remember feeling that, you know, having won this semi-final, that the final would be a foregone conclusion. I got a very strong sense of, you know, Germany, that's it, basically. They will they will beat the Czechs and will win the Euros after all. I mean, I, I think it was difficult not to think that Germany would somehow find a way of beating the Czechs. Uh, as we know, it was a lot closer than they thought it would be. The Czechs played a very good game and Germany didn't. He's not wrong. Just before the hour, the Czech Republic win a penalty and Patrick Berger puts it away. A really important kick. It's 1-0, Czech Republic. It also has to be said that the penalty that gave us lead was no penalty at all. The foul was outside of the box and the referee made a huge mistake. Time is running out. Germany are 17 minutes away from being humiliated by the underdog in the final. Again, they need a hero. Enter Oliver Bierhoff. Well, I think Bierhoff, by his own admission, was never a brilliant footballer, but he was tremendously hardworking, very dedicated, and knew his strengths and weaknesses inside out and just concentrated on what he was good at, which was to, to score uh, mainly with headers. That was his speciality. Um, and have a good sense of what happens in the box. He was, I don't want to say useless because that's clearly wrong, but he wasn't happy to be part of the build-up. You'd never really see him combine much. He was a little bit one-dimensional, but one-dimensional at a very high level. And of course, you know, being being there when it really mattered and to to save Germany from another embarrassing result he became a hero that night Beerhoff scores to send the game into extra time and it's golden goal extra time but the goal that ends the tournament doesn't exactly glister it's a tired shot from Beerhoff that goes straight at and more pertinently through poor Petter Kuba's gloves still especially the decisive goal hurts uh, until until today it's it's uh very difficult to talk about it because uh, all the nation was very upset. It was not a good shot from Oliver Bierhoff. It just took deflection and uh, made it hard for the goalkeeper to react. Many people blame the goalkeeper, Petr Koba, afterwards. But if you look closely, I think that uh, it's obvious that the shot really took deflection that made it really very hard for him to react. So, yeah, it was a bad goal in a bad moment. Bierhoff is there. Can he turn? Can he find somebody else? Can he get a shot himself? It's in! What a super substitution that's turned out to be! Germany are European champions and Oliver Bierhoff, who came on as a substitute, has scored both the goals. I think it, it has to be said that even though we lost, this was the best performance in the tournament. Uh, in the other games, the, the manager, Dushan Uhrin, uh, 
He instructed the players to play careful, defensively solid football with no risks. But the final was very different. Um, and who knows, maybe if the team played with the same approach as they did in the previous games, they could have won the Euros. But they played active, attacking football, maybe to let the Germans know how much self-confidence they gained during the tournament. They had so many injuries that they had really had to improvise. I remember Thomas Strunz playing on the right side of, of defense in the final because there was just no one left and lots of changes simply because um, people were kind of walking wounded almost. Um, lots of strap, strapped knees and kind of stuff. So Germany got over the line and I think people liked the team and liked the way they had done it and liked the fact that that seemed to be a pretty harmonious, a pretty sort of collective effort. And uh, Bertie Fawkes, who hadn't really done much in the past to further his own reputation, I think was credited for just having blended this team, not so much on the pitch, but off it, and made them a, a very functioning and, and happy, happy unit. So I think Germany celebrated that fact. I still think that the Euros perhaps didn't quite have the same cachet as as the World Cup, but because it had been a long, long time since Germany had last won the competition uh, in 1980, it felt pretty momentous. And once again, you have to say the Germans are champions. And that was the 1996 European Championships. Join us next time in Belgium and the Netherlands when the tone of our reporting on Germany and England is going to change a bit. Your experts were Oliver Kay for England, Stuart Weir for Scotland, Julien Laurent for France, David Chermak for the Czech Republic, Raphael Honigstein for Germany, Sasha Ibril for Croatia, Niels Harlid for Denmark, James Horncastle for Italy and Alvaro Romeo for Spain. Euro Stories, the history of the European Championships, was an athletic media production. You can subscribe to The Athletic and listen to the rest of the series ad-free by going to theathletic.com forward slash history. Euro Stories, the history of the European Championships, was written and presented by me, Ian McIntosh, and produced by Abby Patterson. The Athletic.